lollipops and rainbows. Everything that's wonderful is what I feel when we're together. Brighter than a lucky penny when you're near the Welcome to Guys Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher, and we got on the show again, Doug McBurney, to take us through Acts 15, Part 2. Good to be back, Chris. Thank you. Look forward to it. Yeah, I look forward to it, too. I think we had a pretty fruitful discussion last time about some basic ideas that are discussed in Acts. And and uh, once you know it, that our views that we were talking about is typically the scholarly view. I have pulled up Rita Aslan Zealot, and he basically makes all the points that we've made ourselves. We could probably go through this a little bit later, but in his book Zealot, he describes exactly what we're talking about here. And oh. so it, it's it's not an unscholarly view. This tends to be the scholarly view that there there are these disagreements, there are these internal political struggles, and uh, it's it's just part of the early church that we have to deal with in some fashion. Yes, and and um. I've been in many, many, many mainline Protestant churches, and I don't know that I've ever heard it addressed, this significant disagreement that occurred and, and, and what it really means to the church today. So I'm glad to go through this with you and, and just get to know it a little bit better and hopefully tell some other folks a little bit about it that they might not have heard. Yeah, thinking back on it, all of the church services I've ever gone to, no, no one's ever talked about this. It's <laughs> not something people talk about. No. And so uh, let's, let's recap real quick. So this is Acts 15. Paul, uh, he is confronted by a group of people teaching circumcision. And according to uh, other laws of Moses, and this, this, this uh, issue has not been addressed by the church. It needs to be up-channeled and up-channeled to, uh, up-channeled to Jerusalem. So they go yep. with a big group of people, get go to Jerusalem, and then they have this discussion, debate back and forth. There's various uh, Pharisees, a Pharisaic sect that rises up and makes their points. Paul makes his points. Peter jumps in and he gives a speech, and his speech basically argues that that uh, these these Gentiles, um, God showed him in an earlier vision that the Gentiles were to be uh, equal or considered brothers. And uh, his main argument is, listen, we, we ourselves can't keep the law and we're going to be expecting these new believers to accept the law. That's probably too much for these guys. Yeah. And so give them different standards. So we left off right before or right during James when he jumps in. And so uh, we have that as question 24 yep. in, in our list of questions about Acts. When James stands up to speak, who is he convincing and what is he convincing them about? The believing Pharisees, that Paul and the Gentile conversions are legitimate. Those are your answers. Right. And yeah, that that's absolutely correct. It could also be somewhat of a power play on his part uh, if, if he waits and gives the last words then everyone considers his words authoritative. It consolidates his power, especially after you get to hear everyone's different versions and sides and uh, see which way the wind's blowing. Yeah, and so I hadn't really looked at this through a, uh, a political lens before uh, or a human relations lens. I've always looked at this through a theological lens, but it really is interesting to 
ponder the the just the human interaction dynamics that are going on here yeah um that's one thing we often forget is that human beings are inherently political animals we have our individual goals desires we, we strive for hierarchy in in hierarchical systems and it's the church <laughs> just just the last podcast that i did with uh, warren mcgrew we were talking about how the pastor types tend to attract a certain type of person who enjoys their hierarchy status. It's like, so you, you can't ever take your pastor out and then debate on an equal level with him. He's not going to see you as an equal. He'll always see you as someone who needs to be subservient to his ultimate, whatever he says. That, that tends to be the type who become pastors. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And And James seems to be that type. Yeah, so after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And yeah, so this could be Peter talking about his trip with uh, with Coriolanus. Or, uh, yeah, Cornelius, yeah. Yeah, Cornelius. I said it wrong there. But okay, Cornelius and that's the vision. Right. So yeah, that, that's a definitely legitimate reading of this. Uh, so his argument is that the words of the prophets say that there are going to be these believers throughout history. And he might be referring to things like Naaman. Do you remember the incident with Naaman where Naaman is, what is he, a Syrian general or Syrian captain? And then right. he requests dirt, holy dirt from Israel so that he could take it back to his home country and then worship Yahweh, a foreign right. god in his own country because he has a dirt shrine that could help him do that. So I, I think James is kind of focusing on this idea that the Jewish people, uh, the Israelites, were always supposed to be this priest nation, a light to the world. It, yeah. The idea was never in the Bible, everyone convert to Judaism, everyone follow the law. The, the idea was always, Israel's the priest nation, and what's a priest? It's a mediator between God and man. And so the Gentiles are subservient in that, and they use the priest nation to reach God. So the, the priest nation leads the world to God, and this seems to be James's argument, that we're now fulfilling our priestly roles. Uh, Gentiles have always been a part of this. Let's accept them, and let's lay down some ground rules. So a verse in verse 19, why is James declaring that his people should trouble them not? He's mm -hmm. admitting, as reported in Galatians 2, and the believing oh, he he's admitting he, as reported in Galatians 2, and the believing Pharisees were incorrect. Is he admitting they're incorrect, or maybe that they overstepped their bounds, or maybe that's it's too strenuous? Yeah, well, I think uh, I think by what uh, ends up being issued as the decree indicates that he's not he's not admitting anyone was incorrect. Yeah, so I, I think I overstated that answer. He's not really admitting they were incorrect, but maybe that they need a less onerous path for these Gentiles or less onerous right. restrictions. Yeah, that seems to be what I I see is that he he's not admitting fault he's just thinking you know this is this 
this was unneeded. There's there's a part in here where they say that they never told the people to bother the Gentiles in this fashion. And so, but that doesn't mean that they are disclaiming the law. It doesn't mean that they don't accept Gentile converts who follow the law for full inclusion in in the Jewish body. I don't think I don't think it's going that far. And I think that's one of the things that Paul has to deal with later in his ministry is the Gentiles are still treated as second class citizens. And then then James's people keep saying, if you want to ascend to the higher level, the priest nation level, then you need to start circumcising. And so Paul's dealing with this throughout his ministry. Okay. And so <clears throat> I've always been of the belief that prior to Paul, that in order for a Gentile to achieve salvation, they would have to convert to Judaism. Is that is that Ooh. your position? What's salvation? Salvation means not going to hell after you die. I, I think going... typically, like when uh, Mary's talking about God's going to be the savior of his people, her people, his right. people too, I think she's talking about against the Roman oppressors. And so I think that's a salvation that's in the here and now against against modern enemies for practical earthly reasons. And Jesus's ministry was focused on this apocalypse. Like God is going to return. He's going to sort the wicked and the righteous, kill the wicked and bless the righteous. And so if salvation is all the wicked people get killed and all the righteous people are saved, if that's what they're talking about with salvation, then I think God wasn't going to just kill everyone who didn't believe in Jesus or God. Right. He's going to kill the people who are like murdering their babies and things like that. Okay. So, so it, it's a much more kingdom oriented idea. The idea of being saved from just being killed in the, the conflagration that, that Jesus came to instigate really to bring to the end of the age and all of that. And the millennial yeah, kingdom that's what I think is going on typically in, in descriptions of salvation. I don't think they're as focused as we are now on, oh, we die and we go to heaven or we go to hell. It's That doesn't seem to be, it, it's, it's always restoration of the world, apocalyptic, end, end of the world scenarios, uh, inhabiting the earth, right? The, this restored earth in which God makes all things good and then his people live with him forever. It's, it's interesting in Revelation when he, they're talking about the restored kingdom, there's people that are outside this restored kingdom that right. it, it says they, they, they're not let in because their names are not in the book. These people still exist. They're just not, they're just not allowed in the kingdom because of their ways. And so, yeah, that's why I ask what you mean by salvation, because I'm not quite sure the heaven, hell dynamic is what they're talking about often well of course that might not be what they're talking about but everyone before paul died and then they went either to abraham's bosom or they went to gehenna and then ultimately obviously to to uh to dwell on the new earth or to eternal damnation and hellfire so i mean salvation in that context salvation in that ultimate context in order for a gentile to achieve that before paul brought the message of grace i think would require 
that they convert to Judaism and keep the law and believe God, of course, and have faith. But Then what would be the purpose of the priest nation? So the priest nation would evangelize the world, and some, maybe even a significant number of Gentiles would convert, but the vast majority and the powers and the principalities and the princes of the earth they would be incensed by it and it would eventually make war on Jerusalem to the point where Christ would return with the second coming. Yeah, so when when James is talking in Acts 15, this is directly relevant to this, James seems to make the argument that there's always a contingent of Gentiles who just remain Gentiles. He says, with this, the words of the prophets agree. After this, I'll return, rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, its ruins, I'll set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. And so his argument seems to be, it could be your point that... Oh, no, I think, James people... is, I think James is definitely arguing from the context that you're discussing. No, there's no doubt about that, that James, James has a very kingdom... A kingdom-centric perspective on every, and a very earthly perspective on everything, as the Jews always have. Mm -hmm. um, and and anyway, so to me, that gets to the uh, the underlying significance of the misunderstanding of this new message of grace going out to the Gentiles. But I think I might be getting off topic. <laughs> uh, sounds good. So yeah, I have a whole article on. Uh, the priestly role as described in the Old Testament. Maybe it's worth looking at it at some point. So yeah, let's yeah, go. for sure. Is this a declaration that James's people will do their thing and let the Gentiles do their own? Yes. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty accurate. Why does James yeah. add abstaining idols, fornication, and blood? Okay, so there's, there's different streams of thought in Christianity. There's like faith alone and no works or the faith plus works, covenant theologians, Acts 2 dispensationalists, Acts 9 dispensationalists, like Acts 15 dispensationalists, like all, any, there's all these variants. Right. And so a lot of people are going to have problems with James adding various works to the salvation methodology, the salvation formula. But James does this. So it suggests, and, and if you read the book of James, uh, he seems very works focused. E even if you're abstaining from doing good works that you could be doing, like helping widows, you're in sin. So not right. only do you have to passively not sin, but you have to actively do good works. That's part of his formula. Absolutely. All right. You said uh, you answered the question because he knew Jewish believers like himself would be offended by such things. Paul leaves these commands out in his Galatians 2. Account. Yeah, like Paul seems to just ignore this letter right away. He seems to say, look, they, <laughs> look, look, they confirmed my ministry and he posts the letter in their face. But then he like covers up the bottom. He's like, OK, so <laughs> I'm legit. And so we don't need to follow the law. Yeah. So it's so I, I've never that that certainly has never been elucidated in any sermon I've ever heard outside of a small group of 
a small group of churches that are loosely affiliated. <laughs> that he's covered up parts of the letter. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, so Paul takes this as a political victory because he could go out and just tell everyone, look, look, James and Peter both heard the issues in person and they both affirmed me. I got this written letter to affirm it. Uh, the letter appears. It's how often in the Bible do you get like an entire letter written out and put in another letter? N not not often, but the entire thing is transcribed into Acts. A as I've described previously, the book of Acts seems like an apology for Paul's ministry. It, it's it's its function is to say, look, this guy's legit. He's one of us, and these things affirm it. So if you're reading Galatians two. Galatians 2 describes this confrontation a little bit more. Uh, it, Paul says, I withstood them to their faces. Right. It's like they, they couldn't get anything out, out over me. And he, <laughs> he, he depicts James and Peter and the disciples as all of these guys are arguing against me. Yeah. He says, uh, let's see, where to run off to. Is... <laughs> But from those who seem to be something, ah. whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. He's like, I don't care about these guys standing They're, You know, they might be impressive to some people, but they're not impressive to me. Uh, God shows personal favoritism to no man. God doesn't even show personal favors to the favoritism to these guys. So you guys shouldn't either Galatians. But right. for those who seem to be something added nothing to me, he's like, I Everything I was saying is confirmed. They didn't change anything. They didn't. They didn't uh, put any limitations on me. On the contrary, when they saw the gospel of uncircumcision is committed to me, as the gospel of circumcised with the Peter, and he says when James, Cephas, and John, so he names even John, seems to be pillars perceived by grace, have been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So he says all these people with status, they they didn't. They didn't give me license to do my ministry. They didn't add anything to me. I got it all without these guys. But look, they confirmed me, and therefore my ministry is legit. Right. It's, it's this very uh, savvy way of arguing. I don't know how effective it was to the recipients of the letter. We're, we're, not, we're not told. A lot of these letters are just like one way. And so we don't know exactly how the people took them. And uh, we don't actually know who preserved them, the, the letter writers or the letter receivers who preserved these letters. Hmm. I don't know if it's the I don't know if it's the Galatians 2 or the first Corinthians account where Paul says all they asked is that we should help the poor, which we're already willing to do. And then he just moves on and leaves out. He leaves out all the other instructions. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I I think he just ignored the letter. He he took the parts of the letter that where he's winning and ignored the inconvenient parts. So how are the apostles and elders pleased by this? The matter was settled with only a modest compromise, and it's not quite a compromise if they already believe they're supposed to be a priest nation and the Gentiles are supposed to come to them in a subservient role. Uh, you you see passages in the Old Testament where like the Gentiles bring gifts to the Jews. In the new Jerusalem, every the whole earth is subservient to the special people. That they could probably see that as an extension of this, and so mm -hmm. that that's probably the way that they they're they're rationalizing what's going on, and what pleases them. 
I, they're they're not pleased. What, what's not happening is that this letter is saying Jews no longer have to circumcise. Some no. people some people might claim that. That's not what this is doing. No. All right. Question 27A, if the pronouncement is against circumcision, uh, you said at the moment the Holy Spirit convinced them it was correct, which is uh, interpolation on the text. It's it's not, not necessarily stated in the text, I don't think. So I, as I've read it, I've, I'm convinced that in the moment, during the argument, that Peter and James couldn't help but realize that Paul was right, that they, they that these Gentiles, they, they don't have to circumcise. They, they might not have been. And so I think the Holy Spirit convicted of them of that in the moment, but, but they, they, they were still unable to kind of go all the way with it and, and say, they don't have to do any of any of this. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's just, yeah, it is an interpolation or interpretation. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go down to question 28. Why is the resulting letter not written to the Jews of Galatia? Again, there, there are people who say that entire Acts 15 is all about Jews keeping the law. It, it's, it's just not, not about that whatsoever. If, you, if we read it, okay, let's see. They wrote this letter. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicily, or Sicily, <laughs> Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such command, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So this letter to the brethren who are of the Gentiles is who it's addressing. It's it's uh, specifically Gentiles. It's not Jews. the The Gentiles are the focus of the entire debate throughout Acts fifteen, not the Jews. That's why you can see in in Acts twenty one, just a little bit later, when word gets out that he's teaching Jews not to circumcise, then then he's called to account, and that's why there's riots. Not not be. Right. It's it's not the same controversy as the Acts fifteen. I Paul's in Acts fifteen is just. In my view, solidifying his political clout, so then he can expand that. They say right. they they told the, the people came from them, but they never told these people to go harass Gentiles and uh, tell the Gentiles to to circumcise. Right, and I assume that that's true that they didn't actually send them, but I also assume that those who went out thought they were doing the right thing and thought they were doing something that the 12 would approve of. Right. I, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they would disapprove of it either. I, I think they would say that if someone wanted to convert to Judaism and keep the laws and the commandments of Moses, that would be fine. I, I don't think that that's being prohibited here or them saying, don't do it if you don't want to. Paul says in Galatians, once they start doing it, his converts start converting to Judaism, going all the way. Yeah, uh, he 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 condemns that in the harshest terms. Yes, he does. I don't think that uh, James and the twelve would be doing that. No, doesn't look like it. 
It says, it seems good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives. It says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. So that might be where your answer is coming from, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convinced them they're correct in uh, question 27A. Is that what you, the reference was to? Well, it just that just that in the in the heat of the actual debate that happened, or I I would call it an argument, that they were convicted by the Holy Spirit that Paul was correct. The Gentiles don't have to circumcise, and we're going to have to give on this issue because the Spirit is telling us. And and, and yeah, so that that's what I think. Says, why do the apostles send chosen men with Paul to boost his credibility to three witnesses? Yeah, it seems to be the rational thing to do is to say, hey, this is not a forged letter. Uh, this this <laughs> actually, and they're probably actually just sending people back because it wasn't just Paul that came up in the beginning. There's a whole delegation. So they're, right. they're, they're probably convenient sends as well. And so I think I misunderstood your question. Why is the resulting letter not written to the Jews of Galatia? So you're asking, why didn't they write a letter to the Jews of, of Galatia specifically to the Jews? Right, because some people think that got this it. controversy was about I circumcision of the Jews. Right, right, right. And, and the letter's clearly written to the Gentiles. So, I mean, it, it's actually addressed to the Gentiles, so... Right, it's a Gentile concern. It's it's not it's not adding any extra or lessen any burdens on Jewish individuals. Right, right. And so now I understand the question. The reason it wasn't written to the Jews of Galatia is because the controversy, as far as the twelve were concerned, didn't concern the Jews. It right. Was, it was regarding the Gentiles. Gotcha. Do the people see the teaching of the Twelve as authoritative over the men from Jerusalem? Yes, because Paul and the two or three other witnesses in the letter and the Twelve. Yeah, the people accept James and the Twelve because that was the whole controversy, whether or not the Christian leadership would accept the teachings of either Paul or the men from Judea that were introduced into, into the first couple of verses. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, is the teaching of the false brethren strong enough to warrant sending direct representatives of the 12? Yes, it was. Okay. So, so this is a major point that people have to understand when reading Acts 15. Is this controversy is a controversy because it has not been settled. And so you take Paul's conversion that he describes in Galatians 2. And this is over 14 years later. So it depends how you do the math. If the Paul's three le three years that he talks about in Galatians is added to the 14 or if it's concurrent with the 14. But over a decade, 14 years at least from Paul's conversion, and then add on however many years from the death of Jesus, this, this issue is just not an issue that they consider because Jesus, his ministry was only to the lost sheep of Israel. It didn't relate to the Gentiles. There's there's maybe a couple interactions he has with Gentiles. There's a Gentile woman saying, hey, even, even the little dogs get scraps from the table. And he's like, okay, we'll give you your thing. But the Gentiles were just not part of anyone's vision up, up until this time. They just didn't have to deal with this. And 
this is a new thing that they have to consider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, no one, none of these disciples, none of these converts, the world over knows answers to these questions. They even at the highest levels don't know answers and they have to debate it out. Yeah. All right. What does this suggest about questions one through six? There were Jewish believers converted before Paul who understood the gospel of the 12 and Jesus and what they preached. They're prominent in the church. Yeah, I think all of that's really accurate. Uh, the, these are believers. This is a intra-believer debate. It's oh, yeah, not a, for sure. not about outsiders. Yeah. Why does the letter list a few burdens that are necessary? It's a legalistic compromise to avoid immediate offense to believing Jews out of the Roman provinces that would have split believers perceived as necessary and perhaps it was yeah what what seems to have happened was they took like the most offensive uh, offensive uh, gentile practices and they're like just don't do these things you know right <laughs> yeah it's like uh, stay away from like prostitutes and and uh like uh, temple temple prostitution and and eating things with blood that you're eating something's life force you don't want to be doing that Things right. like that. The things that would be kind of up in a Jew's face. They just wanted to keep that tamp down. And and because there were believers saved under the kingdom gospel by the 12 and by Christ and all, going back to John the Baptist. And, and they were, they were going to have to live with these new Gentile believers for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So they had to figure out how do we... How do we live together without offending one another? And, right. <laughs> um, and I, I think that Paul was willing to give on some of these things because he knew that to the grace believer, to the to the Gentile believer saved by grace, it didn't matter if he compromised on, on a few of these things for the sake of the weaker brethren, so to speak. I don't think he politically had a choice. Uh, like, what do you, do you keep debating after you mostly get something in your favor or do you already fight to the last nail man no yeah much wiser to to uh, fight another day and 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 he go out and and he could he could elaborate in much greater detail through his ministry than in a debate with the 12 so it's definitely a wise move yeah there 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 is a strategy to incrementalism incrementally getting acceptance of various things and then just pushing the threshold over time uh, you look at the even American culture in the, in today's world, where certain practices and lifestyles have just pushed ever so slightly or hard against the margin and pushed that margin out. Incrementalism. Uh, they'll they they won't accept it all all at once, but as if we start pushing that and keep pushing that, we'll get that boundary over and over until you push it to the breaking point. Right, a very, a very uh, successful political tactic over the generations. Right, so it, it seems like Paul is doing, that. and then Paul actually eventually wins out, especially after the fall of Jerusalem, seventy A.D., and the extinguishing of of Jewish Christianity. They're all dead. They, uh, Romans killed them all, and what's what's left is all these Gentile conver- converts who are. Uh, take over the church people like justin martyr he's not a jew he's not coming from these uh, jewish congregations he wasn't directly taught by the 12 he he is a former platonist who
who now has standing because he's he's available it, it, and he's intelligent and he's able to defend Christianity. He becomes one of the de facto leaders. Mm-hmm. All right, next question. Okay, what does verse 31 suggest about all previous questions? The Gentile believers appear to have been relieved. There were not more requirements. Let's go take a look at verse one. When they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Yeah, they had not been taught wrong. They were not rank heretics for believing Paul's message. Yeah. And uh, let's say you're like a young guy in your 20s and you're looking in this Judaism thing and and a letter comes down and says, hey, you don't have to circumcise. You're like, yippee. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) They rejoiced over the encouragement. Yes, yeah. they're rejoicing over the encouragement. <laughs> All right, so um, then we come to the end of the chapter. Paul and Barnabas separate. They seem to have uh, different ways. Let's see. Okay, what does the final resolution imply about Paul's relationship to the Twelve in terms of apostol- apostolic authority in Galatia? He has supreme authority. I don't, I don't know if that's the resolution. Was the res- final resolution imply about Paul's relation to the Twelve in terms of apost- apostolic authority in Galatia? He has supreme authority. If if you have to carry a letter by other people to give you credibility, that would apply that imply that you're probably under them in the hierarchy of things. Ah, yes, good point, good point. So he hasn't been declared as the supreme authority. He's simply been... Uh, allowed in and advocated and and given the right hand of fellowship, as he says. But yeah, not not the supreme authority. That's definitely an overstatement. Right. But so he will argue that later. He'll argue that in Galatians that he has authority that doesn't come from the 12. Why? Why does he have to argue that? Because everyone believes that his authority flows from the 12. And he that's what he has to fight against in Galatians is this perception. And so he spends like an entire chapter explaining why his authority doesn't flow from the 12 and explaining why even though this letter came from the 12 he's walking around with this letter why that doesn't mean that he's under their authority that, that's that's the argument of galatians yes and see i i answer these questions having already read ahead in the stories to galatians so <laughs> yeah, well, and, and and you know the funny thing about modern christianity is that the idea that Paul's authority flows from the 12 is still quite prevalent in the church today. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I pulled up, uh, did it disappear? Oh, I pulled up Bart Ehrman's book, Peter, Paul, and Mary Magdalene. And he quotes from uh, Clementine Homily, which is an apocryphal letter from Peter to James, basically condemning Paul's ministry. And so this letter is probably uh, 380, somewhere around that. And here's what it writes. For some uh, for some from among the Gentiles have rejected my lawful preaching and have preferred a lawless and absurd doctrine of the man who is my enemy. And indeed, some have attempted, while I am still alive, to distort my word by interpretations of many sorts, as, as if I taught the dissolution of the law. But that many, but that may, God forbid, 
For to do such a thing means to act contrary to the law of God, which was made to Moses and was confirmed by our Lord in its everlasting continuance. For he said, the heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle shall pass away from the law. This is an apocryphal letter written by Peter to James, condemning Paul's basic ministry. And, and you see things like that as well. I think it's one in one of the acts of... Uh, the apostles, something like that. What one of those, uh, one of those works where there's another stand-in for for Paul, and uh, then then ironically, it has Paul defeat that individual in a face-off. But Paul's ministry is fairly widely condemned in various sources because it just is so antithetical to what they were expecting. Even, even uh, in Peter's letter, he says, hey, there's a lot of things hard to understand in what Paul's teaching. Right, he has, right. He has to te- treat them with like kind of kid, gl- kid gloves. And so apocryphal letters like that, opinions like that, 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 that those gained significant traction in the early church. Yeah, so uh, there, there's not very good communication. You don't have the internet. You don't have... Right a new source casting everything. There's all these various letters and they're circulating and then they're collected by people. And then they have to dig through these letters and figure out what's legit, what's not legit. And uh, a lot of times, what are you going to consider legit things that confirm your priors? And so (laughs) probably in a lot of these situations, it's like they're, they're affirming apocryphal non-inspired texts, because that's what they already believe, you know, things sure. like that. Yeah. Yeah. But there is a whole work salvation faction and it does survive for a long time. It even survives today. Uh, you must do works to be saved. Paul declares, no, you don't have to do works. You're justified by faith apart from the works. Amen. All right. So let us jump real quick to the count in Galatians. Unless you want to read Rita Aslan's account of Acts 15 first. Yeah, that, that might be interesting. I'll, I'll pull that up. So this is from Rita Aslan. Uh, Overlap says, uh, thank you for the work you're doing. It's wonderful and has been blessing me greatly. Oh, well, thanks, Overlap. Hey, awesome. Yeah, oh, yeah. Welcome to GMW and Idol Killer. Yeah. And the Overlap Live. Tim Barber. Great. So Rita Aslan. So we're going to read Rita Aslan. So you've got to update me. Um, Rita Aslan is—is is he legitimate? He is a terrible human being. He's okay, the, he, I had a feeling. I—I am I, not that familiar with him, but I thought that he was somewhat heretical. He's the—he's a Muslim, and he's the guy who wanted that Covington kid uh, persecuted and punched and violence against him on the internet, but. His book serves as a popularization of fairly mainstream academic takes about ancient Israel. And so okay. it, it's it's not something you just throw away. It's something you could read and consider. And it's, yeah, absolutely. It's a fairly good book, uh, even though he's a terrible human being. Okay. We'll keep that in mind, but he's a, a decent historian and a, and a fairly decent writer, I guess. Right. Okay, so it says, Paul's second trip to Jerusalem took place about a decade later, sometime around 50 CE. So he uses the CEs, the common oh, era. Yeah. Uh-huh. The common era, 50, 50 years from what, Rita? 
What what a C. <laughs> and was far less cordial than the first. He had been summoned to appear before a meeting of the pa Apostolic Council to defend his self-designated role as a missionary to the Gentiles. Paul insists he's not summoned to Jerusalem, but went of his own accord because Jesus told him to, with his companion Barnabas and an uncircumcised Greek convert named Titus by his side. Paul stood before James, Peter, John, the elders of Jerusalem assembly to strongly defend the message he had proclaimed to the Gentiles. Skipping forward, according to Luke, James, in his capacity as the leader of Jerusalem Assembly and head of the Apostolic Council, blessed Paul's teaching, decreeing that henceforth Gentiles would be welcomed into the community without having to follow the laws of Moses. So as long as they abstain from, you know, we already talked about. Luke's description, Luke's description of the meeting is an obvious ploy to legitimate Paul's ministry by stamping it with approval of none other than the brother of the Lord. However, Paul's own account of the Apostolic Council written in, in a letter to the Galatians not long after it had taken play, place paints a completely different picture of what happened in Jerusalem. This is why during our first conversation, I said Luke is acting as like a neutral third party, like like trying to do resolutions. And so it's it's less vitriolic than Paul's own account because Paul is a very heated individual. So getting back to Rita, Paul claims that he was ambushed at the apostolic council by a group of false believers, those still accepting the primary truths of the temple and Torah, who had been secretly spying on him and his ministry. Although Paul reveals little detail about the meeting, he cannot mask his rage at the treatment, and he says he received at the hands of Quote, the supposedly acknowledged leaders, unquote, of the church, James, Peter, and John. Paul says he refused to submit to them, not even for a minute, as neither they nor their opinion of his ministry made any difference to him whatsoever. I, I, I think that is really funny that Paul does write like that. He sounds like uh, it's you it, 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 it doth protest too much. It, 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 <laughs> Well, I, I think I think Rid is being slightly hyperbolic, but only slightly, and it's pretty pretty fair account. Yeah, so it's it's not a terrible book. He talks about the role of the temple and and uh, their view of the world, their worldview, and so it's 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 worth reading. But keep in mind, he is a terrible human being, and uh, yeah, <laughs> whatever that means, and not a believer. So, right. So he says, uh, thus turning to Galatians 2, this is Paul's account of what happened. After 14 years, and I think there's some time frame concerns with the three years that he described previously. And I think one of the resolutions is that the three years is concurrent with the 14. And so um, not to be added, it's not 17 years after the conversion, something like that. So then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. It took Titus with me. Oh, yeah, and Will Duffy was posting about how this might have been his third visit and not second visit to Jerusalem. So uh, th there's a whole paper on that, but that's probably outside the scope of this discussion. And I went by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. I think this is a very important detail that we need to consider because this is not in the acts account that he primes his audience. He has these secret meetings to tell them 
uh, what he's doing. And he actually gives us the reason, his motivation, and it's political in nature. He says, I primed these guys with what I'm doing so that they don't shut down my ministry. That That is his stated legitimate reason for the private meetings. Yeah, Got he you. doesn't want to have gotten there and <laughs> he's run all the way in vain because <laughs> he gets shut down. Which is interesting because what this suggests is that there were some rumors going around that said, hey, Paul had these secret meetings and so he's communicating to them on the sidelines and they're the ones pulling the strings. And it almost reads like he's trying to say there, there was a purpose to these secret meetings and it's not what you thought. And he's just having to come out and explain his political situation that he's the meetings. The purpose was so that he, his ministry can continue. So it appears, it appears something like that's happening. Yet not even Titus who was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised. So if I did like a 50 questions on Acts or Galatians two, it's like, what, what is he talking about here? Why is Titus, why, why is he in danger of being compelled to be circumcised? There, there's an entire faction of Christianity that believes that circumcision has been done away with either by Jesus or in Acts 2. Right. What, right. what the heck is Paul talking about here? That <laughs> Titus is not compelled to be circumcised. That That is that question. Yeah, and the fact that he he uses that to drive home his point that he's won the argument implies that he overcame their their probable desire to have a greek circumcised right and Ti titus went to the the home station of christianity their their capital to the, their highest leadership and titus still didn't circumcise right big win and this occurred because false brethren, again, that, that false brethren is kind of uh, vitriolic or it's, I, I think he's being hyperbolic. I, yeah, I don't think. Yeah. And, and can I tell you how I've always taken that or, or at least yeah. how I take it is he's, he's not saying that these are not believers. He's not saying that these people are heretics or going to hell or leading my, my converts to hell. What he's saying is they weren't honest with me. And they said things behind my back. They were false in that sense. So a bit hyperbolic. Well, he does does say that uh, they should uh, cut off all their male parts. <laughs> right. They, That's they very should, hyperbolic. They, they should castrate themselves, these people who like circumcision so much. Might as well go all the way. So <laughs> Paul is, is a little bit heated in this. Yeah, his ministry is being undone from under him. So... This this incident that he's referring to, that he's responding to, is after this Acts 15 meeting. So at some point after Acts 15, his people in Galatia get reapproached by the people from James. That's right. And um, then they start turning away from what, what Paul has taught them. The argument is, yeah, the letter's true and valid, but if you want to be the special secret, uh, uh, what's that, Caddish, double secret, special Christian, uh, you have to go all the way, get the circumcision. Yeah, People yeah. are like, okay. And so by this time, so Luke called them men from Judea. Paul now names them after this second incident. He calls them men from James specifically. So he seems to be calling James out in Galatians. 
Yes, and it, it's really funny. I told you the incident when I was getting kicked out of that church for this very reason uh, that I said, these people are from James. And they're like, well, they're not Christians. They're just people who had talked to James previously and then oh, yeah. went directly to here. And so they're not men from James. They're just men who had happened to talk to James prior to their, like, what, what is this? It's like, what, how do you, how do you even respond to that? Like, that's, that I, Paul would not write like that, 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 that's not the most straightforward, uh, Octum Razor's reading of what's happening here. Right. And so I, I consider, what does this say about how James felt after the Jerusalem council? So James achieves uh, uh, something of a victory in that he, Paul carries the letter with James' instructions. But it seems that James later actively tries to undermine Paul. Or, or I don't know if he's trying to undermine Paul or if he's trying to maybe just maintain the relevance of his ministry. But he definitely, well, I shouldn't say definitely. He appears to have sent people after after the Jerusalem council to do just what they'd agreed not to do. Right. And some scholars, and by some, I mean, probably like most scholars on the topic of the book of James, thinks that it, the book of James is a subtle refutation of Paul's ministry using some of the exact same examples of uh, righteousness and Abraham and things like that to try to refute direct examples Paul was using for his ministry. They they think it's, it's uh, not so subtle. <laughs> subtle attack on paul's ministry and i will we'll have to we'll have to discuss that at another time because i have a little different theory on the book of james but i'm i'm still working on it right well your, your theory uh it also probably has scholarly support because a lot of people don't think that james is written by james the brother of jesus so that's also a very scholarly opinion yeah, very interesting anyways that that James would the one thing that that we can't uh deny is clear is that after the agreement in Acts 15 James seems to go out of his way to continue to I don't want to use the word harass but I think Paul would probably use the word harass Paul and his converts. Right, and they still want to maintain their authority too. They don't want Paul just taking over the entire movement. That's that would be dangerous for them. But Paul writes this. He says, the false brethren brought in. He says, all of this occurred because of these people who he calls the false brethren, uh, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel may continue with you. So this is part of, I'm apostle because of my uh, personal revelation from Jesus. It's not from the 12. I didn't submit to any of these guys. I didn't do any things that they wanted. None of us gave a single inch in in these these discussions and so it conveniently leaving out you know a few a few uh, of the of the results yeah um, a fairly major part yeah, yeah. so I, I like how galatians 2 6 7 and uh, 8 and 9 are worded it's basically saying that all these people who are the pillars of the church, you should not consider the pillars of the church. He says, I don't consider them pillars of the church, 
their authority doesn't flow out to me. Uh, my authority is higher than theirs. I don't consider them any different than like a random guy I meet down the street. <laughs> I says, but from those who seem to be something, whether they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. Like he's like, he's like, God doesn't even give these guys special status. Oh, that's so funny. Um, for, <laughs> for those who seem to be something added nothing to me, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel is uncircumcision has committed to me and the gospel is circumcision for Peter, then they, they blessed the ministry, which dispensationalists like this verse because it talks about different roles to different people in the different circumstances. So people who aren't dispensationalists have to make arguments like these, this is just about like ministry. That's it's not, it's just about who they're approaching, but they're approaching them with the same message. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. And that, that is their argument. Um, I know. And, and you do see that the second gospel is italicized in your English. And so that's not going to be in the original, but the original implies it's saying um, the gospel of the circumcision to Peach, uh, sir, gospel of circumcision to Peter. It, it's an implied noun there. But uh, from everything we've been reading so far, that explanation just it doesn't make sense to me. They're they're debating these things out, and and this this controversy happens well after this has supposedly been resolved in Acts. It's continuing on. They're they're just not teaching the same thing. Right. Yeah. Two two different gospels regarding the same God, regarding the same Messiah, regarding the same salvation. Right. And that's why in uh, Galatians 1, he says it's not even a different gospel. It, it oh, says, yeah. Right. Right. Galatians 1 6, he says, I marvel that you're turning so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So he, he's he's saying these are like the same gospel. It's it's not even a different gospel that you're switching to. Um, it, so it's uh, right. But but uh, so folks who don't uh, subscribe to dispensationalism will use that verse to say, "See, there's only one gospel." Paul said it himself. Right. <laughs> They'll say, which, which is not really the point Paul's making. <laughs> Right, that that doesn't seem to be so. The way they'll read this is that to him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, they'll say it's not another because it's a false gospel. They're just teaching absolute lies, and so they they call the the people preaching the gospel call it a gospel, but Paul says it's a different gospel, but it's not a gospel because it's a fake gospel. Uh -huh. But but I I just. I don't see that as what's being described in the scenario, keeping in mind Acts 15 and then and then keeping in mind Acts 21. I don't think that's that's what's happening. Right, right. So linguistically, like reading comprehension could support those readings, but it just that's that's why you have to go through the questions in a lot of these scenarios. Unless you're looking at the text and figuring out what's going on in all the moving pieces you're gonna you're gonna you might come to bad conclusions based on your lack of examining the contextual data so this is this is all about context 
what contextually is the best reading of these scenarios? Yeah, yeah. And so at verse 9, Galatians 2, 9, he names the people who seem to be something. Some people I interact with, they don't think that James, Cephas, Peter, and John, who are named in Galatians 2, 9, are the same people being referenced in Galatians 2, 6. The people who know. seem to be something, that they think these are different groups of people. I, th I think that's an incorrect reading. That's a that's a stretch. That's a stretch. Right, but they they need it because they need these these people who seem to be something to be unnamed interlocers. They they need these people to be teaching something other than Paul because in their minds Paul is teaching the same thing as James, Cephas and John, and the James, Cephas and John can't be telling him uh up in uh telling them to submit up in verse five. They can't be the people that Paul refuses to submit to. Right. Of course. Yeah. Because that, it, that, yeah. Yeah. But, but those are the people he's referencing. They, they have something to which he says he is not even going to submit to those teachings. And they're specifically named. That's why people have to sever that link. They only desired that we should remember the poor and the very thing I was eager to do. Yeah, this is his his summary like of that. the Galatians letter. Right, that that's it. Which, Which I don't think the Galatians met letter did it mention the poor? I'd have to go back and read it. Yeah, I'll go Acts fifteen. I don't know that it mentions remember the poor, but well, that there was his ministry. So that that's what Paul did. There was a famine in Jerusalem. And so he went, he went to all these different cities fundraising to try to oh, feed yeah. these people, and mm -hmm. so that might be what he's referring to. And he might, he, maybe he's skipping the letter altogether. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it's inconvenient, and so he's 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 not referencing it. Yeah. Okay, so here's what they need to abstain from: Acts fifteen twenty nine, abstain from idols, blood, things strangled, and sexual immorality. And so maybe I I don't think Galatians is a reference to the letter. He doesn't even. It, that's done and gone with. He doesn't. Right. Need to he, he's that. he's just going to refer. It, it's almost as if he's he's reminding his Gentile audience that his ministry and and their and their mercy on the twelve is uh, is what he's remembering is that he's out fundraising and he's helping to sustain them. And I just want you all to keep that in mind. I guess. Yeah. So jumping to. Where did it go off to? I, I had it pulled up. I had my X-15 narrative uh, pulled up in which I walked through what goes on. Th there is a follow-up to the X-15 questions. And it's the X-15 narrative is an article that I wrote. I don't know if you read through this article at all. No? Yes? I have not seen that one yet. No. Okay. So this is the follow-up. Um, the previous post was all the questions and then the following post was me walking through a narrative in which all the questions are basically answered, just summing it up in some sort of easy to read narrative. So yeah, scrolling so if down, I read that, if I would have read that, that would have been cheating. I had to, I had to answer <laughs> these cold, no cheating, right? No. Um, <laughs> so 
uh, I'll kind of skip uh, all the Acts 15 stuff and kind of jump to right afterwards. Okay, so the debate's furious. Christian Jews are wedded to the law. It says there, Acts 21 says they're zealous for the law. It seems to be the same group that pops up in Acts 21. Peter the Peacemaker decides to break up the discussion. He states Gentiles can be saved, but don't have to convert to Judaism. The pause in the debate allows Paul to describe what he does. James jumps up and declares the compromise. Compromise takes authority. So they decide to advertise this compromise with a letter. Letters addressed only to the Gentiles reassures the Gentiles that the previous disciples were never commanded to teach circumcision to the Gentiles. All right. The icing on the cake is that sometime afterward, thereafter, Paul is caught teaching that even Jews did not have to follow the law. When Paul returns to Jerusalem, a riot ensues. Before the riot, James recollects, recollects about the previous decree they made, applicable only to the Gentiles, then commands Paul to engage in activity to prove that Paul does not preach that the Jews do not have to keep the law. James literally recounts that their previous letter was only to the Gentiles and that they teach no such thing to the Jews. Again, there's people out there that say circumcision was abolished by either Jesus or in Acts 2 or maybe even Acts 9. The circumcision is abolished for everyone, always. But James is not teaching that. The 12 are not teaching that. The only person teaching that conceivably is Paul. So it starts in Acts 21, 18. On the following day, Paul went with us uh, to James and all the elders were present. So this is Christian leadership. These are just not random Jews that don't believe in Jesus. When we had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. This seems to be a common tactic for Paul saying, look at all these things I'm doing. The implicit message is I'm an asset to our movement, our theological movement, and expelling me or condemning me would be destroying all this work that's been done. He's saying, I'm an asset. I'm not a detriment. <clears throat> and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. They said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they're all zealous for the law. So from reading that, are these people Christians? Yes, they're Christians. They're Christians and zealous for the law. Yeah. And so this this is uh, who James is trying to placate. So it, it's a very weird teaching that some Christians teach that James is done away with the law at this point. He's teaching that the law is no longer required, uh, that circumcision is not required for Jews. James just isn't teaching that. He's actually citing that a large body of Christian Jews are so enraged that anyone could dare state that the Jews don't have to circumcise, that they need to placate these people. So that begs a question. So after Paul, after the Jerusalem Council, do you think that the 12 were mistaken in continuing to insist that Jews need to be circumcised? Uh, mistaken is a harsh word. I think that God, God throughout the Bible, 
talks about his standards of judgment is that he meets people where they are, like people like uh, the the Ninevites. He says these people don't know their left from the right hand. Why are we judging them with these harsher standards? People are judged based on how much they know, how much uh, they they've experienced. It, it's the culpability based on based on how culpable you are, you know. And so, yeah. Well, so the. So the revelation that we read later in the New Testament in Romans when Paul says there is now no difference between Jew and Gentile, that hadn't been revealed to the 12. So they're not going to be held to a standard like that. Yeah, and all as believers. And guess what? Like uh, how how widely circ circulated is the letter of Romans even after it's written and sent out? Not very. Uh, most Christians are never going to, within Paul's lifetime, read the letter to the romans and so right, it's, right. and decades centuries later they're they're, they're only going to have partial bibles uh, they're not going to have a compiled new testament until a marcion puts down maybe the first canon uh then origin does a lot of work to try to build some sort of text that's that's relatable but he says there's so many different versions of these letters going around. I can't, I can't like uh, what I do for the Old Testament. I can't put together like five different uh, versions side by side in columns. There's just so many versions of everything floating around that he doesn't even dare try to do that. So it's like, at what point are people culpable? And what point does one gospel take over? I, I think God's reasonable. Right. And God knows. And, and the judge of all the earth will judge rightly. <laughs> Right. So I, I would have a, I'd, I'd be, I'd have a hard time saying that James and the disciples are wrong in the things they say, even if they uh, argue against Paul and the things that Paul teaches, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Paul is wrong either. <laughs> I, I think there can be legitimate disagreements about important matters without both parties being wrong. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's that's a good answer. So, <clears throat> when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, said, you see how many myriads of the Jews who have believed and they are zealous for the law. That The word is like the zealots, you know, people who really care about the law quite a lot. Jesus taught the law, the 12 taught the law, Paul's the only one in this, in this chain of event not teaching the law. But they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. We do not get Paul's side of this. We don't. We do not have Paul responding whether or not these accusations are true or false. We don't have him him defending. He's he's just silent in this account, and it's. It's hard to believe that Paul would be silent. And so maybe the writer of Acts didn't think it was politically expedient to put in Paul's side of this, especially with how, how roundly Paul is put down. Paul has to go through a humiliation ritual in which he, he does uh, ritualistic right. things. And, and the purpose is, here's the purpose of those things. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken the vow. You will purify, shave your heads. That those 
things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, that all may know that those things which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. They say, do these things because there's believing Christians who are zealous for the law, and they think you're teaching Jews not to circumcise, so you must go through this ritual to prove that you yourself keep the law and that you've never, ever, never taught any Jews not to circumcise. Which which is false. That's, that is what he's teaching, that there's no difference between Gentiles and Jews. That's his entire ministry. We're right. all on the equal playing field. He, he talks about people being circumcised in the flesh, but not in the heart within Romans. Things like that. Circumcision is nothing. He talks about all he talks about is circumcision. You just you just read read his letters. You if and if you like conceptualize it, you might get uncomfortable with how much he talks about circumcision. <laughs> I love how uh, I don't know if you, if you ever read uh, Bob Enyart, the late great Bob Enyart wrote a book called the the first five days. Oh, and, and it was about a Christian government taking over America. And at one point they put on trial, um, I can't remember, I, I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was a very prominent female Democrat politician slash lawyer. And she goes on trial because she refuses to stop promoting criminal behavior like child killing and all this. And at one point she questions the judge because she asked him, do you believe in the Bible? And he says, of course. And she opens the Bible and she reads Paul's uh, dissertation on Abraham while circumcised, while not circumcised. Was he in circumcision? No, he was not in circumcision. And he says, she says the word circumcision. She reads it about eight times and she slams the book and she says, this is all insanity. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is... I, I don't disagree with her. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is it's like to the unbeliever, that's if you open the Bible and read that section, you're definitely going to close the Bible and assume this is crazy. <laughs> so here, here's a huge problem. Like we are just not in that worldview. We're not in the mindset of first century uh, subsistence farmers living at a standard of living like modern Sierra Leone. We, we, we just... We, we can't conceptualize what they were dealing with and their worldviews. And so we read these ancient disputes about things that we don't care about. And then we, then we have to come up with <laughs> meaning for them in our own lives. And then you have like Calvinists, like Romans 9 is all about individual election and predestined. No, it's about circumcision. <laughs> it's right. It's about weird disputes that you have no idea. It's 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 all about it's it's something so outside your worldview that you're just you just can't conceptualize what they're talking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about ancient ritualistic ceremonies is is what they're debating. Oh. Yes. So this is interesting. Uh, let's go back to Riddle Aslan. I think I got another thing highlighted by him in which he breaks down the events from... Oh, uh, he breaks down the events about this whole Acts 21 situation. This time, James confronts Paul directly, telling him that it's come to his attention that Paul has been teaching believers to, to forsake Moses. 
unquote, and, quote, to not circumcise their children or observe the customs of the law, unquote. Paul does not respond to the accusations, though this is exactly what he has been teaching. I think I think Aslan's right. Although Acts doesn't say Paul had been teaching them. Acts is silent in that matter. So you have to get that information from kind of like reading Paul's other work to see if those accusations are true or false. Right, which Aslan obviously read them because he realizes that they are true. Yeah. To clear up matters once and for all, James forces Paul to take part with four other men in a strict purification ritual in the temple the same temple that paul believes has been replaced by the blood of jesus see aslan's right there too uh, so that <laughs> quote all will know there's nothing to the rumors said about you and that you observe and guard the law unquote paul obeys he seems to have no choice in the matter all right uh <laughs> Uh, skipping forward, he's he, he's talking about Paul going to Rome. There might have been a more urgent reason for Paul to want to go to Rome after this whole incident is over with. After the embarrassing spectacle at the temple in which he is forced to renounce everything he had been preaching for two decades, Paul wanted to get as far as he could away from Jerusalem and the ever-tightening noose of a control of control placed around his neck by James and the apostles. Besides, Rome seemed the perfect place for Paul. So, uh, it's an interesting take. It's it's probably not inaccurate. So, no. and he's I don't think he's I don't think Rita Aslan's making this up himself. He's he's drawing on just like the normal secular teachings on these writings. He's like a popular yeah. like like Michael Heiser. He he himself's not coming up with things. He he's he compiles things and then puts it into a digestible format for other people to consume. He Rita Aslan's just giving scholarly takes in a layman presentation. So I, I think there's a lot to that. I think uh, what we see when we look at Acts 15, Acts 21, and Galatians 2, is that there are doctrinal, serious doctrinal disputes going on in the early church, which are not resolved. There's not the harmony that's often depicted. And so this... That there, there seem to be teaching two different things to sometimes overlapping audiences. And so this is the dispensationalist idea that, so one way to make sense, there, there's multiple ways to make sense of this. So the Rita Aslan way to make sense of this is none of this is like true doctrine. These are just two competing sects striving for dominance in the ancient world. And sure, that's, that's neither, what he would say. True. Yeah. The dispensationalist way to read this is using the exact same data and everything as is presented with the exact same narrative. Let's say that God gave a new dispensation to Paul, and then Paul had to work that out with the existing people in their current knowledge, in their existing ministry to a world who had not been given this this message previously as, as paul talks about paul talks about that in ephesians 3 he says uh, nobody knew about this before me i'm that's the right. first that's right it he was says, a mystery ephesians 3 5 which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as has now been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the gentiles okay this is the key this is key to understanding Paul's ministry. This is the key to understanding Romans 9. It's the key to understanding all of Romans, all of Paul's work, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body 
partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And here he talks about this, of which I became a minister according to the gift, the grace of God. Uh, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was gift, given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. If you go through Paul's Amen. writings, his corpus, he, he uses a lot of first-person pronouns. I became a minister. I became a minister. Right. Me, My gospel. Yeah. Right. He has a different message, which he claims special revelation that's not coming from the apostles that is different from their message. That Absolutely. he he alone has been given dispensation to go preach, and and so and what what Aslan misses because he's not a believer is that Paul, understanding grace, knew that he could go through the humiliation exercise in Jerusalem, submit himself to the law, and that it would not be counted against him in any religious sense. He could do that, and then later he could go and tell. The, uh, the Gentile believers, look, if, if you don't want to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols because it offends your brother, then don't eat it. You know, if you want to if you want to submit yourself to something for the for the sake of your brother who's weak, well, you can do that. So Paul could use that as an example later. Yeah, he says, uh, I become all things to all people. Right. And so. He... Right, right. So Paul, Paul's interesting. It It, it is. It is interesting to read through his works in a different lens, in a political lens. Who is he trying to convince? What they're, What is he trying to convince them of? Who is he up against? What's his argument and strategies for getting his points across? What is Paul's hierarchy? Where is he within the Christian church in these times? And you come to some interesting conclusions. Very good stuff. Good questions and, and good uh, good commentary, good good discussions. It's really great interacting and, and, and learning. Yeah, uh, uh, there, there's a lot more within Paul's work that point to the things that we said. We, we pulled out little clips from like Ephesians and uh, things like that. But I, th I think it all points to the dispensationalism. There are dispensationalism. It's it's a word. It's used in Ephesians two. I have Ephesians two pulled up. If you indeed heard of the dispensation, oikonomia, this is house rule, God's way mm -hmm. of doing things, the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me to you. How about by revelation? He made known to me the mystery. We talked about what that mystery was. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, things like that. Uh, he's given this dispensation. Uh, dispensation's a real thing. God deals with different individuals differently in different circumstances. And I pointed out before that if people are not eating kosher, everyone's a dispensationalist in, in some <laughs> tiny regard. Okay, that's so true. So now I want before we go, I want to I want to ask the big question. The big question of Chris Fisher. So what is your opinion on why dispensational theology dispensational doctrine is overlooked is it just resisted is it misunderstood or is it perhaps purposely purposely overlooked in in the mainline church mainline christianity dispensationalism is would be considered a relatively small sect by by right. someone like rita aslan so it is it is not intuitive it's not simple it, it deals with historical nuance. 
And consider, like the author of Acts, Luke, uh, he does not want to display dispensational factionalism. And so even within the own histories, it's it tends towards presenting unity rather than division. Even though we have Paul out there saying, oh, I'm Apollos, I'm a Paul, statements like that, that there is factionalism. The message that we have that's simple, that we can read, that we understand, that we're familiar with, is gospel unity. It, it, it's, it's, doesn't, it's not conducive to Christianity to teach that there was extensive factionalism in the very earliest churches. Okay, so why has the modern popular doctrine not coalesced around dispensationalism, but around other covenant theology and 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 other what, what I would consider fundamental and and significant misunderstandings of New Testament doctrine. Well, a lot of people want everything to be centered on Jesus, and so if Jesus is teaching something different than Paul, that, <laughs> that, that creates a problem. <laughs> that that's that's a huge hurdle that they have to overcome. Yeah, Jesus was not teaching about himself. Every time people guessed who he was accurately, he said, shush, don't tell anyone. <laughs> right, Do right. not tell. His his ministry was a moral refer, reformation <clears throat> in preparation for a coming, uh, a coming apocalyptic event that would yes. destroy and reform the world. Believing in Jesus to the 12 was believing in the coming apocalypse. Right, exactly. And no, so, and so the, the modern church, they they want to look to the gospels for teaching from Jesus on how we're supposed to live today. And so in in, in doing so, they they get a lot of, of confusion because that's not the main purpose Jesus came to the earth was not to teach people how to live today he was teaching people how to live in that day in preparation for a very significant event in the not too distant future right so when he says to sell everything you have and give it to the poor you do that because there's going to be a quickly coming apocalyptic event that's going to wipe out the world and your wealth doesn't matter and so you you, you don't have right any right right but but the modern but the modern pastor the modern corporate pastor uses that to lay a guilt trip on people. Well, if you're not able to do that, at least you can support my church and tithe to me. <laughs> right. And so I, I think there is a tendency to want Jesus's ministry to be the de facto ministry that the pastor himself is teaching. And so teaching factionalism and dispensationalism would certainly undermine that perception. But yeah. Yeah, and and the the grace, the grace doctrine, is uh, it is it's a little more nuanced. It's a little more sophisticated. But the message, the message is critical. It's Christ alone. It's faith in the blood of His cross alone. There's no works. There's no tithe that's going to help. That. So I, I I am concerned that people can. In fact, I wonder where is the line. And I appreciate what you said earlier that God takes people where they are. So where is the line to misunderstanding doctrine and not achieving salvation? Because there there has to be a line somewhere, but I, I would assume that God's very graceful with that line. Yeah, I, I would assume he's graceful for that with that line too. I don't think that 
if there's a righteous person in Africa who's never heard of God, but he does, he's good and uh, does holy things, righteous things. I don't think God's going to kill him in a, in an apocalyptic event. I, I just, I don't think that's the idea of the apocalypse and those people will be saved in that respect. So that I think Paul talks about this in uh, what the first chapters of Romans, the people who are unreached and how people yeah. have moral conscience and morality matters. Paul's message to the Gentiles was a fleeting message, one that had a shelf life and expiration. And it, the expiration was the apocalypse that these people are gained salvation from this apocalypse based on faith alone. But after God returns and implements the kingdom, it's not like they're saved through that as well. It's not like now they could be just as evil as they want. And they'll probably get kicked out of the kingdom after that comes. Things are going to change. But until that time, God has specific reasons why he's turning to the Gentiles and turning to them in that fashion. And in Romans 11, he, he talks about that, that uh, it's to make the Jews jealous. And then he warns, he warns the Gentiles. He says, yeah, it's faith alone for you guys. But if you guys are super wicked, God might change his mind again. If, if this is just not working out, you guys just sure. become the worst people. He says, for yeah. if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. That's right. He can end this program as, as certainly as he ended the last program. Uh, and so I, I think my previous question wasn't the big question. This is the big question. So. What does God want from us so that he can take us to heaven forever with him when we die? Let's say we don't make it to the rapture. We don't make it to any apocalyptic event. Let's say I get cancer and I die six weeks from now. How am I going to know that I can go to heaven and live with Jesus Christ forever? Well, Paul's message is affiliation with God through Jesus, his son. A belief in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel there is laid out. Christ died, buried, rose, and was seen, and uh, ascended. And so that's the basic gospel message. As long as you believe those things, you have affiliation with God. You're part of his kingdom, part of the righteous. There, There's other ways to achieve it, as we were talking about in Romans 1, but that's the straightforward message, faith alone, that Paul's teaching. Amen. That's a good answer, Chris. Okay, it's good. <laughs> so you agree? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So PTA. Anyway, and... I, oh, anyway I, was... I always, I always like to, uh, I always like to come back to the basics in any kind of deep theological discussion because you just never know who might tune in, and you never know who might not have, have. Who, who might you never know who might just need a little reminder of the fundamental basic gospel that's really the whole point of all of these other all of these other theological discussions are really about taking that gospel out to the to the world who either hasn't heard it or doesn't believe it yet and and offering it in a way that they can comprehend and we can make them make a choice about that and maybe they maybe they'll choose for it maybe they'll choose against it but our our mission as Christians is to put that choice in front of them so that they have that opportunity. And I thank God for your work in that, in that respect, Chris. Well, thank you. Uh, before we go, I just wanted to read PTI Douglas's comment here. Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet and 
Amen. That is true. <laughs> uh, one of the top five books that I recommend for all Christians to read is Bart Ehrman's Jesus Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium, which uh, he's he's not a believer. He's he's a uh, atheist, ag agnostic, but that book goes over Jesus's uh, his his apocalyptic message. And so it's it's really interesting and it will we, we talked about how people are kind of like in their modern bubble. It's one of those things that'll kind of push you towards the ancient worldview, the ancient bubble that they're kind of living in in the world that they're dealing with at that time. And so I think it's very important. But uh, I'll let you go. Uh, we might have All to right. talk later about some other issues. Because oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm in the midst of I'm in the midst of reading your book. God is open. So I'll probably finish it. Oh, it's pretty thick. So it'll take me a little it, while. But... It is thick. I, yeah, I, I read it sometimes. I'm like, wow, this is pretty smart stuff <laughs> in here. It's like, I, I don't remember writing that one, but that's pretty well, good. So just so you know, I, I'm just making a list of questions that we'll be able to get together once I finish the book. And uh, I, I can already tell folks that I do recommend it. So, Oh, thank you. Amen. Thank you, Chris. It was a real blessing. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. God bless everybody. All right. Thank you. And for anyone uh, who's listening, if you have questions, comments, put that down below or start a thread in the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.